You know, there's something about a rags to riches story that all of us just find interesting. One such story uh, was a lady by the name of Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley. And she was a seamstress. She was born in 1818, died in 1907. But before the Civil War, Elizabeth Keckley had been a slave in Missouri. And her greatest desire was freedom, both for herself as well as for her son. Well, her owner at the time promised her that if she could raise $1,200, then she could purchase her own freedom. And so she worked as a seamstress, and she came up with a plan. That plan involved her traveling to New York. Um, Obviously, her master really didn't think that was a good idea, and so her plan fell through, and she couldn't raise the required amount, really just due to Uh, her schedule for work, and then having to raise a son. And so there were some sympathetic patrons there in St. Louis who gave her the money that she needed. And Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley paid the price for her freedom as well as her sons. Now, in 1860, she moved to Washington, D.C., and there she established a successful dressmaking business where one of her clients just so happened to be Mary Todd Lincoln, the first lady. And so after the Civil War, uh, Elizabeth Keckley published her autobiography, and the title of it is Behind the Scenes, 30 Years a Slave, Four Years in the White House. And she tells her life story. She uh, tells some personal things about the Lincolns, uh, fond memories that she had of them. But one point that she makes in her autobiography, she knew that without the aid of someone else, she never would have been able to purchase her freedom on her own. You know, freedom is a word that's often on our minds and hearts. Freedom is something that we all champion. It's a thing that we as Americans believe to be the fundamental right of every man, woman, boy, and girl. The language of freedom is enshrined in our founding documents, and really that's an irony when you consider the plight of African Americans during the days in which those documents were being forged. And yet we recognize freedom as something worth fighting for. We understand freedom as something that is to be preserved. For example, this past Friday, we just celebrated Veterans Day, a time that we set aside to show gratitude for the men and women who've served our country in armed services. Aren't you grateful for their contributions? In fact, if you served, would you just stand so we can honor you for just a moment? If you served, would you stand to your feet? Thank you. And God bless each of you, dear veterans. And we're so very thankful for you. And folks, listen, I'm free today, and you're free today because of the sacrifice that someone else paid. And and while this is true, it's also true that freedom carries with it a certain measure of responsibility. Freedom does not imply that I'm free to do whatever I want to without consequences. No, freedom means that I'm free to do what I ought to do. And as one person said it this way, rather than being a toy to play with, freedom is a tool to build with. 
And so freedom ought to be something to produce within us a sense of humility, profound gratitude as those who have come to experience freedom that's been purchased by the sacrifice of someone else. Now, there's a whole book in the Bible that's devoted to this subject of freedom and the responsibility that comes with freedom. And that is the book of Exodus, the book that I've had you turn to this morning, the second book of Moses. In many ways, Exodus really is about a journey of freedom. It's the story of a nation of people Whereas the book begins, they're initially flourishing in Egypt, of all places, but they soon come under heavy oppression. And by the time that the book ends, this nation, they're on the move, headed toward a land of their own. God, having brought them out of Egypt, leading them, providing for them in the wilderness, God's going to lead them into the land of promise, having taken up residence in their midst. And so Exodus really is the story of the people of God who were set free from their bondage in Egypt, and they begin to make their long journey to the land of promise. And so this is a journey that really takes place under the hot desert sun. It begins on the banks of the Nile River in the shadow of the great pyramids. And chapter after chapter is action-packed. We read about a baby in a basket. We read about a man on the run. We read about a burning bush, plagues that bring a superpower to its knees, the parting of the Red Sea, supernatural provision from God for his people in the wilderness. And so this is the story of freedom. It's the story of how God brings his people out of bondage and into his own promised blessing. And so really, as we read this story, I really want us to set out on a journey of our own as we begin making our way through many of these chapters in Exodus over the next little while. And honestly, you'll understand this to be your story and my story because uh, here we have a pattern of redemption established here in the book of Exodus because the Exodus points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished as he's delivered us from the power of sin, and he's bringing us into the fullness of blessing in himself. So Exodus chapter 1, verse number 1, if you've got your Bible, notice the the book of Exodus begins in this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, verse 6 says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of God were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, we'll stop reading here. And these seven verses really constitute what could be very well a prologue to the book of Exodus. So I want to speak from this subject this morning, a journey of freedom, because that's what we're being introduced to here in these opening verses of the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is the name that's given to this book in our English Bible, but in Hebrew, the book is simply called Names, 
And that comes from the first line there in verse number one. These are the names of the sons of Israel. And so Exodus, this is the name that's taken from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint. And Exodus comes from a Greek noun which means departure or going out. And so that's really a fitting name because this is the story of how God brought his people out of their Egyptian bondage. And so Exodus means brought out. By the way, freedom means to be brought out of something. It means to be liberated from something. And so what these early chapters uh, present us with here in Exodus, it's the story of the children of Israel and their miraculous departure from Egypt where they had lived for more than 400 years. Now, you know the story of Scripture. They had gone down to Egypt as a family, but they depart as a nation. God brings his people out of bondage, and yet the fact that he's brought them out of bondage, this is really not the only thing that's emphasized in the book of Exodus. The Lord brought Israel out so that he could bring them into promised blessing, which, by the way, that's always true of redemption. Redemption, salvation, freedom means that I've been brought out of something that held me in captivity, and yet I'm being brought into fullness of life. The Israelites are brought out of their bondage. They're brought out from under the cruel oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, slavery there in Egypt. And yet, at the same time, that's not the only intention that God has in mind for his people. Because God himself wants to establish a covenant with his people, and God wants to take up residence and dwell among his people. And so you could really follow a threefold division uh, when you look at these chapters in Exodus. The first 15 chapters or so deal with redemption. Uh, they tell us how the Lord works supernaturally, miraculously to bring his people out of their bondage in Egypt. And then along about verse 16, uh, the emphasis changes from that of redemption to covenant. God brings his people all the way to the base of Mount Sinai where he uh, reveals himself in a powerful way and where God establishes the terms of the covenant. He reveals his law through Moses and the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 sort of serves as the central chapter of the entire book. And then from verse, or, or chapter 24 through the end of the book, uh, you have specifications given uh, as far as a tabernacle and the construction of a tabernacle where God wants to dwell in the midst of his redeemed people. And so the point then is freedom means I'm brought out of something which enslaves me, and yet I'm brought into something, uh, I'm liberated, fullness of life. And by the way, isn't that the story of the gospel? Hasn't God done great things for you in Christ? in that he's rescued you from uh, the bondage of sin. He set you free, but he's not simply liberated you to live as you please or to live for yourself, but now he's freed you to serve him. He's freed you to walk in the fullness of life that he himself provides. And so this is the takeaway from this wonderful book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. Freedom is to be brought out of that which enslaves and brought into fullness of life. Now, I'll get to the text here in just a second, but let me just mention a few preliminary things that you need to know. As far as Exodus is concerned, this book is about a man, and that man is Moses. 
Moses occupies a very prominent place in the book of Exodus, as well as all of the first five books of the Bible. It was Moses uh, whom um, scholarship believes to have authored these books, even though he's not stated so much as the author in the beginning of Exodus. Uh, we do know that it was Moses, though, whom uh, writes uh, these first five books known as the Pentateuch. Moses had a remarkable career. It's a career that spans at least four of those first five books of the Bible. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses is a towering figure in the biblical story. His name is mentioned somewhere around 800 times in the Bible. And apart from Jesus Christ, no other person in history has made more of a lasting impression on the world as Moses has. Moses was the lawgiver. Moses was the one through whom God gave the Ten Commandments that we see recorded in Exodus chapter 20. It's Moses who leads Israel from Egypt to the border of the Promised Land. And he was a man who was heir to the wealth of Egypt, a man who was given prestige, raised in the palace of Pharaoh himself. And yet, when Moses was 40 years of age, he chose to identify with his own people. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 11 when he says that it was by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. For he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So at 40 years of age, Moses turns his back on all of the comforts of the palace in Egypt, and the circumstances that sort of brought that about in his life, uh, he, he tries to act as Israel's deliverer in his own strength in his own power when he murders an Egyptian and tries to bury his body in the sand. Well, he realizes that Pharaoh perhaps has put a hit out on him, and so what does Moses do? Well, he flees into the desert, the backside of the Sinai Peninsula, where there he watches sheep. And so, in fact, you look at Moses' life, he lives to be 120 years of age, his life can be divided into three segments of 40 years. His first 40 years were spent in Egypt. His second 40 years were spent there uh, tending sheep for his father-in-law. His last 40 years were spent leading the Israelites through the wilderness. So listen, Moses, he, he's, he's 80 years of age before God really even begins to use him to do what God's wanted him to do. D.L. Moody said that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody, 40 years discovering he was a nobody, and the last 40 years learning how God could use a nobody to become a somebody in his sight. So the book of Exodus is about a man, and that man is Moses. Now, something else to consider is that Exodus is about a nation, and that nation is Israel. And as we'll see in just a moment, Exodus really is the continuing saga of the family of Abraham because it picks up right where Genesis leaves off. It tells us the story of Abraham's descendants by showing what happened to them in Egypt. And so as you begin here in chapter 1, 
if you don't have an understanding of the book that has preceded Exodus, you're going to be somewhat in the dark. And so we've got to emphasize the fact that Israel's redemption here from bondage, this had nothing to do with their character. It had nothing to do with them being good enough to deserve deliverance, but no, it had everything to do with God's own grace because the list of names that are mentioned here in these opening verses, 12 names, the 12 sons of Israel. You ought to write dirty dozen in the margin of your Bible there. Because this was a ragtag group of guys, wasn't it? Far from perfect, riddled with problems, guilty of having betrayed one of their own, having sold him into slavery, deceiving their father about the whole ordeal. And so even when you go back into Genesis and you read the lives of the patriarchs, you discover that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, Uh, These are men with whom God has established a covenant. This is a family that God, by means of his sheer grace, has established a covenant, and it had nothing to do with perhaps their own character or even their own performance. And so grace is illustrated here for us in real time. And yet, this nation is an important nation because it's Abraham and Abraham's descendants that God has determined that he's going to bring blessing into the world through Israel. And so Exodus then is about a man, that man is Moses. Exodus is about a nation, that nation is Israel. And then, ultimately, Exodus is about a Savior, and that Savior is God. Much more important than Moses is the God of Moses. Much more important than Israel is the God of Israel. And he's the real hero of the Exodus and everything that happens afterwards. And so Exodus shows us how God faithfully keeps his covenant promise. God graciously rescues his own people. God powerfully defeats their enemies. He generously provides for their needs. And he shows them the way of obedience. And all that they would ever need, all that they would ever desire, would be found in God who is their Savior. So Exodus then really is a book all about a Savior who comes for his people, who delivers his people over and over and over again. And in that way, Exodus points us to the salvation that we've come to know in Jesus Christ. So all that's just introductory. Now, notice from the text just a few lessons uh, that I want to mention. Number one... Notice with me God's providence directing the circumstances of life. There's some lessons that we can take away from this prologue to Exodus, and one of, that, one of those lessons has to do with the providence of God that's always working behind the scenes, directing the circumstances of life. Because again, in these opening verses, we're reintroduced to the 12 tribes of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, their father. And so the importance then of this family is seen in the fact that this is at least the fifth time in the biblical record that we've encountered the names of the sons of Jacob. And again, verse 1 says, these are the names. And so it's a formal way to indicate that that this this is a preface to a monumental event. 
These are the names of a family which has a history. These are the names of a family which has a destiny. These are the names. Uh, In many ways, this really is both uh, a milestone because it calls to mind everything that's happened prior to this point by way of God's promise and his faithfulness to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So it's a milestone, and yet at the same time, it's also a signpost. A milestone points backward to something that needs to be kept in mind. A signpost points forward. And so this is a signpost saying that this is the family that God has so chosen to bring blessing to the world through. This is God keeping his promises. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who keeps his promises? And when you consider all that was against this family, how the circumstances time and time again seem to be against this family, how they constantly seem to have their back against the wall. And even here in Exodus chapter 1, we see this family uh, under the boot of Pharaoh in Egypt. We wonder, how is it that God is going to be able to bring blessing to the world through a people who were under oppression and under the yoke of bondage, a people who were in Egypt and not in the land that God had promised to give their ancestors? Well, that's when you need to know something about the providence of God. God's providence means that he is sovereignly, by means of his omnipotence, he is sovereignly orchestrating the affairs of life and the circumstances of life so that there are no coincidences. See, the thing is, we don't believe in coincidence as the people of God. We believe in providence. Providence means God is orchestrating the events of his. By the way, we're going to see this in the Christmas story also. In Luke chapter 2. You know, Galatians says that it was the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them which were under the law. And so prior to that moment, what you see happening, you see God providentially directing the circumstances of life. Because at a fixed time on his calendar, God was going to send his son into the world. The redeemer would come. And so what does he do? Well, there's an emperor in Rome named Augustus who sends out word throughout his empire that they need to, we need to take up some taxes. There needs to be a registration. Oh, and by the way, every man needs to go to the town of his own birth in order to be registered. And so what does that mean for a fellow by the name of Joseph who's living in Nazareth? It means he has to take his wife who's with child to Bethlehem of all places because he's an ancestor of David. He's of the house and lineage of David. You know what you see happening here? You see God arranging the circumstances of history to carry out his purposes. And so that's why you need to be extremely careful before you make snap judgments based upon your circumstances. When you look at the circumstances, the political landscape of the day, when you look at the societal conditions of the day, men and women, we serve a God of providence who is providentially arranging the circumstances and the details of my life and your life, and he's carrying out his plan. And so this book, these are the names. In Hebrew, it begins with a conjunction, and. And these are the names, or now these are the names. I was taught in grammar class, you don't ever begin a sentence with a conjunction. 
Now, I think that now it's not really an issue, but I, I remember learning that that's bad grammar. I'd hate for my English teacher to see my sermon manuscript because I have sentences that begin with conjunctions all through my notes. But that's how I, I was taught you don't begin a sentence with a conjunction. But it begins with that conjunction in Hebrew, and you want to know why? Because Exodus 1 is tying in to what's already happened prior in, in the book of Genesis. God has made a promise. God has made a promise to a man named Abram in Genesis chapter 12, calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees, establishes a covenant with him, promises him that he's going to be made into a great nation, promises that he's going to give land to his descendants. You fast forward to chapter 15, you see God appearing to Abram, establishing a covenant, entering into a unilateral one-way covenant promising Abram that he's going to have a son. He's going to have a family. He's going to give land to his descendants. And Abram just needed to look up at the stars of the sky and try to count the multitude of the heavenly host because he would have that many descendants. Just as many grains of sand as there are on the seashore, so would his descendants be. Now, there's a problem at this point in his life Genesis 12, Abram's 75, his wife Sarai, they don't have any kids. The same thing's true by the time you get to Genesis 15. Here God is still promising that he's going to be a father of a great multitude, but he doesn't have any children. It's not until you get to chapter 17 that God really begins to give a little bit more detail with how God's going to bring about this promise in Abraham's life. And yet, Abram, he's, not, he's 99 years old when God tells him that he himself is going to have a son, changes his name to Abraham, changes his wife's name to Sarah, and he's 100 years old when Isaac, the son of promise, is born. And so you see God making this promise to Abraham. Uh, you see God establishing that same covenant promise with Abraham's son, Isaac, and Isaac's son, Jacob. And so this is the faithfulness of God, the providence of God, working behind the scenes in history. And so we come to Exodus chapter 1, and now you have this, this family, these descendants of Abraham. They're 70 in number when they go down to Egypt. And we would ask the question, well, how did they get to Egypt? It seems to present somewhat of a problem. God promised to give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan, but here they are in Egypt of all places. And so that leads then to a second truth that I see illustrated in this text, and it's this. God's persistence despite the frailty of our fallen condition. God's providence directing the circumstances of life, but God's persistence despite our own human frailty. God's providential hand has been working behind the scenes up until this point, directing circumstances, all while carrying out his own purposes. You see it in Abraham's life. You see it in Isaac's life. You see it in Jacob's life and in his family's life. Notice that Joseph's name is mentioned there in verse number 5. And Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph is how this family ended up in Egypt. And you know that the last 11 chapters of Genesis are really devoted to his life story. 
We're told that Joseph was the apple of his father's eye, but he was despised by the rest of Jacob's sons. And so out of envy, they betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. And yet, as the providence of God would have it, Joseph became a prince in Egypt. And the circumstances leading to that involved him going to prison, being promoted after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. God was showing Pharaoh at that time how there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, and so sufficient preparation needed to be made. So it's obvious that God's hand was on Joseph's life that led to him being promoted to second in command. And it was Joseph who administrates this plan to store up grain that would then provide for the entire land of Egypt during the years of famine. Now, unbeknownst to Joseph at the time, that famine would affect even those living in Canaan, and that included his estranged brothers. So once more, you see the providential hand of God driving Joseph's brothers to Joseph's feet. The famine becomes God's instrument to bring Joseph's brothers there to his feet. And so, you know the story, Joseph provides for his family, calls for his father, his whole family to come. They're given the best land, uh, the best of the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. Now, here's the thing. Go back to chapter 46 in Genesis. And, and, and Jacob is given some reassurance from God here. God speaks to Israel in visions of the night and says, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Verse 3 then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And so that's what happens. Jacob sets out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carry Jacob, their father, their families, and they all move to Egypt, and so that's where they are. And yet, God was in it. God's the one who went ahead and told Jacob to relocate his family, but that God wasn't through with him, that God was going to bring his family up out of Egypt in time. So Joseph and his life story, Genesis ends with his death, Verse 6 of Exodus 1 picks up where Genesis 50, verse 26 ends, and the Bible says Joseph died, all his brothers died, and all that generation died. So all the patriarchs have died by this point. The family heads of the 12 tribes have faded from view. One generation fades from the scene while another generation takes its place. Which, by the way, that's the cycle of human history, isn't it? And Solomon is later going to say something about this in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 4, where he says, a, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The earth around us stays the same, but man is here one day and he's gone the next. Man is so very frail. His life is fleeting. And yet there's something deep down within us that knows that things shouldn't be this way. Man should be permanent. Nature should be transient, but it seems that the opposite is often the case, and that's true simply because of the fall. 
Kind of reminds me of something I read about a man who went to his pastor for some counseling. And after some small talk, he got down to business and told his pastor why he had come. The man said, two weeks ago, for the first time in my life, I went to a funeral of a man my own age. He said, I didn't know him that well. We worked together. We talked to each other from time to time. We had kids who were around the same age. But he suddenly died, and and it could have easily have been me. He says, that was two weeks ago, and they've already replaced him at the office. I'm told that his wife is moving out of state to live with her parents. Two weeks ago, he was less than 50 feet away from me, and now it's as if he never existed. The man confided in his pastor and said, I've hardly slept since then. I can't stop thinking that it could happen to me, that I'm going to die, and then a few days later, I'll be forgotten as if I had never lived. And then he asks this question, shouldn't a man's life be more than that? Now, he didn't realize it, but, but that guy was really getting to the heart of the very same issue that's illustrated for us in our text. It's the frailty of human life, the brevity of a man's life. Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. People are born, they grow up, they go about their lives, they die, and it's an endless cycle that happens over and over again with each passing generation. One generation goes, and another generation takes its place. And folks, it's just an illustration of the frailty of our fallen condition. How is it that God, how is it that, that, that with, with such a frail condition, that this family is somehow going to bring blessing to the world. Because listen, it's not dependent upon them. It's dependent upon the faithfulness of their God. They are frail, but God is faithful. You and I are frail, we're fragile, we fail, we drop the ball, but aren't you glad that God is faithful? Time and time and time again, he's proven himself to be faithful in my life and in your life. God tells Jeremiah, he says, behold, I'm standing over my word to perform it. That means when he makes a promise, he's not just throwing out some empty promise that may or may not happen. No, when God makes a promise, he's standing over that promise to see to it that it comes to fruition. And so Joseph dies, and all that generation dies. But listen, here's God standing over his promise, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So God's promise is directing the circumstances of life. You see, God's persistence despite the frailty of our own fallen condition. And then one last thing, notice notice how God's promise is demonstrated over the course of time. Look at the verbs that are used there in verse number seven. The children of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. Does that sound familiar to you, the language? It ought to because this is the same language of Genesis 1 and 2. God's original design for creation, 
where God created Adam and Eve. God created man in his own image. God told Adam, I want you to exercise dominion. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. And of course, Genesis 3 happens. The creation is brought under the curse. Adam dies. Death is introduced. Sin is introduced into the human race. The wages of sin is death. And yet God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And God goes to work. His redemptive plan is put into motion. Abraham and Abraham's family are, are a key part of that plan because this is the family through whom God's going to bring blessing to the world. And so here they are. Now they went out from Canaan a family of 70, well, now they're in Egypt, a nation of perhaps 2 million. They're fruitful. They're multiplying. The land is filled with them. God is carrying out his promise. God is faithfully watching over his word to perform his promise. But now here's something that happens. The winds shift. Where they had the wind at their back, as long as Joseph and that generation was in leadership, they had favor politically. They were comfortable in Goshen. But you see, we'll get there later on, but verse 8 says that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so the wind begins to shift, and so no longer do they have the wind at their back. They begin facing a strong headwind. They come under bondage. They're forced into slavery. They begin crying out in captivity. Had God forgotten his promise? No, he hadn't forgotten his promise. Their bondage didn't take God by surprise. Calvin suggested that without the oppression of Pharaoh, the Israelites might have preferred to remain forever in the land of Egypt, which would have nullified God's promise to Abraham. So what happens? They begin getting uncomfortable because God has something in mind. He has something that's going to showcase his mighty power, his power to save. And the greatest act of redemption in Old Testament history will take place here in the Exodus. And yet it's only the second greatest act of redemption that's ever taken place in history, and it points forward to the greatest act of redemption that has taken place through Jesus Christ and the greater exodus in him who is our Passover lamb laying down his life for us, bringing us out of bondage. Listen, folks, I'm telling you, aren't you grateful to God? Freedom means to be brought out of something but brought into something far better. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? I've got to stop here. If you could take one thing away from this preface to Exodus, I think it should be this. Our God is always watching over his promise to perform it. You find yourself weary and discouraged because maybe you feel like the winds have shifted in your life. You feel like you're in a wilderness place. Our God is a Savior. 
He's mighty to save. The great hymn writer William Cooper said it this way, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread, they're big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Israel's in captivity here in Exodus chapter 1. The bud has a bitter taste, but soon, soon, sweet will be the flower when they experience the redeeming power of their God. Do you know Christ and His redemptive power? Because let me tell you something, the circumstances of your life have brought you to this very place right now. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord, turn away from sin and place your trust in Him because He wants to bring true freedom. Whom the Son sets free, He is free indeed. Freedom from the bondage of sin, but freedom to everlasting life. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. And thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Time and time and time again, you providentially work behind the scenes in our lives. Even, Lord, when we don't see your hand, Lord, as the statement goes, we can always trust your heart. For those this morning, Lord, that may find themselves in perhaps a, a difficult spot for whatever reason, Lord, my prayer is that in faith they would look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is their hope, who is their salvation. For it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.